a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast. I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities. This podcast is dedicated to the sportscasting industry and talking to different people in or around the broadcast business from all corners of the country and at every level. Today's guest is Corey Provis, the radio voice of the Minnesota Twins. However, before we start, I want to share a couple things with you. First, if you aren't subscribed yet to the podcast, there's a new way to do it. It's now available on Spotify. So now we are on every major platform, including Spotify, iTunes, slash Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, and Stitcher. Second, and perhaps more importantly... I'm really happy to announce a partnership with the Sports Talent Agency of America, or as most of you know it, STAA. I've been a paying member of STAA for four years, and it's been absolutely vital in helping me to become a better broadcaster in every facet of the business. STAA is more than just a job board. STAA gives access to tools that not only help to improve your on-air sound, but has helped me to craft a killer resume, write cover letters that get noticed, and John Chalesnik provides personal advice specific to your situation to help with every aspect of the business. John has been a mentor, developed into a friend, and now I'm really happy to promote his awesome service as a business partner. If you've been on the fence about STAA, we have a special offer through SayTheDamnScore.com or the podcast, whatever you want to call it, for you. Simply visit stwatalent.com slash say the damn score to sign up for a membership and you'll receive a free copy of John Chalesnik's ebook, The Smart Way to Get a Broadcasting Job, a complete guide to cold contacting employers. It's a great resource to just walk you through the steps of how to cold call and just send emails and not have them be ignored. I do get a small kickback for every member who signs up using stwatalent.com slash say the damn score. That comes in really handy for me when I get my web hosting bill, need new equipment, or just need something else for this podcast, which I don't, I don't want to be over dramatic or whiny, but it does cost money and I enjoy doing it and I spend it happily. But if I could find a way to make that up a little bit, I would certainly appreciate the support for the show. One more time. Sign up as a member of stwatalent.com slash say the damn score and get a free copy of The Smart Way to Get a Broadcasting Job, A Complete Guide to Cold Contacting Employers by John Chalesnik. We'll get more into our partnership in the future, but right now, it's, I've taken enough time. I want to get to the conversation with Corey Provis, the voice of the Minnesota Twins, Recorded live from the Say the Damn Score mobile studios in a back hallway of Lunds and Byerly's Grocery Store in Minnetonka, Minnesota. So without further ado, here's the conversation. Uh, we're recording this when the championship series and the playoffs are about to start. The Twins did not make the playoffs, so you've had a couple weeks off 
uh, since the end of the season. And I was just curious, what do you do? Do you have any rituals after a long, grueling season? Do you have any rituals of things you do right away when a season is finished? Well, as a married man and a father of two, those choices are few and far between. Because if there are things that I want to do, it's not that I, I, I can't do them. It's that there's other things that take priority. Uh, like any married man, you have a honeydew list. And so my honeydew list is pretty lengthy after a six, seven-month baseball season. But a lot of it is just enjoyable time with my, my wife and my kids. Uh, I have a five-year-old and a, and a soon-to-be a three-year-old. And that, that, is, that is my world. That is my life. And so when the season ends, uh, I, I pretty much I don't watch much baseball. Although this postseason, I'm a little bit more interested than I have been in the past because of my previous uh, ties with Milwaukee and, and Bob Euchre. So I've taken on uh, more of an active uh, role just watching the games and being more interested because I'm cheering for not just Milwaukee, but certainly Mr. Baseball to have a lengthy run here. That's something I like to talk about with people on this show because it's a position I'm in. I don't have kids yet, but still pretty recently married and you know it's a difficult profession to have a have a healthy relationship in just because you're on the road so much you're gone so much what are the keys for you to making that work with a a grueling schedule like we said 162 games and but then a nice long time off how do you kind of balance that act well my wife and I we, we were together a while and you know she's been with me now when I was with the Cubs, when I was with Milwaukee, and now with the Twins. So she she has learned exactly what this job is, Logan, and what it entails and the sacrifices that uh, that she and that we all have to make. But my wife bears the brunt of it with, with my travel and with how I, I just can't be around on weekends. And that, that's just how it is when, when the season ended. When this season ended, the 2018 season, and you have that first Saturday off, you're like, am I supposed to be here? It just feels odd that I'm... I feel like I'm missing something that I'm playing hooky because Saturdays and Sundays, those are, those are locked in. Those aren't just, you know, slam dunk family days. Those are days that, that I go to work. Uh, so she understands my wife is amazing, and, but she understands the job and, and what it entails. And the off season is kind of my choosing. And I, I, I chose this year to not do Big Ten football, uh, as I just wanted to be around more. I wanted to be more. Uh, active with my family in the off season, October. Uh, although we've been in this rainy, awful stretch here, October <laughs> really is a pretty month in Minnesota. There's a lot to do. There's festivals. There's apple picking. There's pumpkin, you know, picking. There's just so much to do, and the weather's still pretty decent to be outside. Uh, so October to me, I just wanted to be around. So then I'll start my Big Ten basketball coming up in November, and that is about maybe two games a week. But I do get a lot of Gopher games, which I which I appreciate that that it minimizes my travel to an extent. Uh, but I I just maximize my time at home. That I that I'm not looking to go on vacation. I'm not looking to go out too often. You know, I just hey, let's Wednesday night. Let's go. I I don't want to go out. I'd rather be at home and and be up with my kids in the morning and be there for dinner and bedtime at night and bath time and. And all the stuff that that I missed throughout the season. So that's where my where my priorities are, Logan. Once the season ends, you know the the Twins is my job. It's not my life. Uh, my life is 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 the three people that I have at home, and that's who I that's who I enjoy being around the most. And I maximize my time in the off season. Do you feel like you have to make a conscious effort to, per se, make up for being gone during the slower times? Absolutely. And I and I there are times where I'm not a golfer. 
But uh, but I play tennis, and I have friends here that I like to go get together with and maybe watch a game. And But then in the end, do I really want to sacrifice three, four hours and watch a football game on a Saturday or Sunday, or would I rather be with my kids and watch my, my, my daughter's dance recital or go to my son's you know, baseball or soccer or school of rock, whatever he's got going on. And it's not really a tough call when you start to balance out where I could be, but where I'd rather be and where I'd rather be is with my family. So at what point in your life did you realize you wanted to go into sports casting? Did you know early or did you find out late? I knew early. I was, I grew up in Chicago and I grew up a big Cub fan. But I probably knew at the age of six that I had no chance of being on the field. I pretty much <laughs> knew that my athletic peak was about eh, five or six years old. So then I became just a fan of, and I, I was born in 1978, but the 84 Cub team, that was my first love. That was the team that just drew me in, where I could go you know, position by position from Durham to Sandburg, uh to, to, to Boa, to Say, to Moreland, to Sarge, to Denier, to Jody Davis, to Sutcliffe and Lee Smith and Sanderson and Steve Trout, Rick Russell, all these guys, that was the team. And I said, I love this team. But who's, who's the quirky guy that, that always comes out of the booth in the seventh inning with the big glasses and sings this, this seventh inning stretch? And my fandom of Ryan Sandberg was high as a kid, but I was even a bigger fan of Harry Carey. And I thought, that's so neat. You can still be involved in baseball, but you can't play it. You can still make a living and talk about it. Then you combine that with my family. My my cousin's Brad Sham. He's been the voice of the Dallas Cowboys for over 40 years. And he's my first cousin. My mom's the youngest of four. The oldest is Brad's mom, my Aunt Harriet. And when I started to realize what he did for a living, I thought, that's it. So I, I, I've watched this Harry Carey guy, and now I have somebody in my family who does this, who broadcasts sports and makes a living doing it. Why not try and go that route? So that's that's where it all began for me, and it started with, you know, on, on Sundays during the Bears season, turning the sound down and clipping out the rosters from the Sun-Times and just broadcasting to the television. And that's that's how it all began for me. Do you think if you would have grown up someplace without the level of broadcasters that Chicago offers, you grew up in... Uh, Omaha or rural South Dakota, somewhere else, and you weren't exposed to Harry Carey at that age. Do you think you would have eventually found your way down this path anyway? I, I probably would have. And if, if you grow up in, say, you know, the Midwest and you didn't have those Cub teams, but then you had probably KMOX and you had St. Louis Radio and you had Jack Buck and you had you had those iconic voices that and Mike Shannon that were calling Cardinal games that I would imagine that I would have just been drawn to. And WGN too is such a was such a flamethrower growing up that even if you if even if I didn't have the TV, that I, I think I would have just connected with the Cubs on radio from Brickhouse uh, to eventually Pat Hughes, who's who's a dear dear friend of mine. Uh, I, I think I would have found a way to to just become a fan of broadcasting and certainly baseball. But the '84 Cub team that that to this day, and I'm now 40. That is that is the reason why I knew that this was something that I wanted to pursue. And without that 84 team, I, I don't know if I'd be here, but I knew my love of baseball and my love of broadcasters began that 84 season. Did you ever get to meet Harry Carey? Never did. Never did. He died in 1998, and I was still in college. I never met him. Um, you know, I remember going, uh, like kids do now, you, you go to – 
you know, restaurants, you go to grocery stores where, where celebrities and athletes may be signing autographs and you may show up. I remember meeting some of the some of the players from the those 90s teams and even 80s teams of Cubs and Blackhawks and Bears and and Bulls and White Sox, but I don't, I, I can't recall ever meeting Harry Carey because I'm sure I would have remembered, but no, I, I don't think I ever met him. You know, you mentioned you're sure you would have remembered. You just put off the entire uh, 1984 Cubs starting lineup from memory. Are you gifted with a particularly strong memory? I, I process things visually. So if we're chatting here and you try to tell me about how to, how to build a, a speaker system and you're telling me I wouldn't have the I would have no idea what you're talking about. You're speaking a whole different language. But if I see you do it, if I see you do it and I see cables attached and I see what goes where, I have a better chance. I'm not going to say it's it's going to happen, but I just process things visually. So for what I do for a living, you know, and this just came up with uh, with Joe Maurer playing perhaps his last game ever uh, in his career, and it was such a dramatic day. Uh, that late September afternoon at Target Field where Joe came out to catch for the first time since August of 2013, I just remembered where Joe was and who the, the particular players were when Joe last caught. I knew it was late 2013. I remember the Mets being in town. I remember it was Anthony Swarzak pitching. I remember the batter, Ike Davis, was the one that hit that foul ball that, that hit Maurer in the mask and, and ended his catching career at that moment. Uh, why that stood out to me, because the Mets don't come to town too often, interleague play. I think it was a makeup game, in fact. Uh, had it been the Indians, had it been the White Sox, had it been the Royals, a, a divisional foe, maybe they all blend together. But for some reason, that stood out to me, and I just recall it, and I think namely because of the fact that it was the Mets, and they, they returned for just a one game, a one-day makeup, and that, for some reason, resonated, then maybe it would have otherwise if it was just a divisional team that happened to be in town. You mentioned that Brad Sham is your cousin, the longtime voice of the Dallas Cowboys, and he's been on this podcast before, and he has a long and winding road to where to get to where he eventually got. What did he tell you when you first asked his advice on on how to pursue a sportscasting career? Don't be picky. About that first job, you need to get on the air. Get on the air wherever you can. And he was also, if you were if you were doing games, and I, and I was lucky to do games in college. I was calling Syracuse basketball and Syracuse football and even lacrosse, and lacrosse is a big deal in Syracuse, and I was even doing some minor league baseball during my time there, that if, you're, if, you're, if you have family listening, they're going to say, oh, you sound great. You're doing awesome. This is amazing. You're going to get hired by the Yankees when you come out of school. You're going to be great. That's all good and well, but that's not helpful. Where Brad came in into play for me was he would give me honest critique, and he would give me an honest assessment of what he liked, what he didn't like, and that's what I needed. I needed to, to, to be better, to do a better job so that when I graduated, I had a really good tape, and it was a cassette tape, and that's what it was. That's what we made to kind of to get jobs. It wasn't even a CD. It wasn't even uh, anything digital. It was a true cassette tape that we edited and put together, and it would take time, and I would label it with a typewriter, and I'd put the uh, the cassette label through the typewriter, and Syracuse football versus Virginia Tech with the date. Syracuse basketball against UConn with the date. Pre-game interview with Mike Hopkins, assistant basketball coach at Syracuse. So that's exactly what it was. It was a tape. Uh, but he, but Brad gave me just honest feedback with what 
I needed to do. And I, that, I thought that was, that was ideal for somebody 1920 who's still learning and wants to get better to have that kind of guy to lean on for that critical and honest advice. I don't think too many people were getting at the time. Was he ever able to open any doors for you that you otherwise would not have been able to have access to, or was that uh, not something that ever happened? I never really asked him for that. I, I never really, it never crossed my mind to even go down that road. I really wanted to earn it on my own, and and I did. My first job out of school was in uh, Blacksburg, Virginia, at Virginia Tech, doing women's basketball games for Virginia Tech, and they had a good team that had a really good following. And how I got that job, it was more about where I went to school. I mean, Syracuse has this amazing, amazing network base and facilities, but just a great group of people, men and women, who will open doors for you if you treat them the right way. And if you also, you know, we're, we're good. And you, you, you showed that you had some promise and you really cared about your career. There were possibilities out there. And I would not, I don't think I would be here today without Syracuse. I, I, I just don't. And uh, so how I got that Virginia Tech job, though, was my senior year of college, my last semester. The last thing anybody wants to do as a senior, second semester, is to take a Friday 8 a.m. class. <laughs> and I did. It was a play-by-play class. It was taught by Dave Pash, who is now a, a prominent voice on ABC and ESPN. He does the Arizona Cardinals. But at the time, he was kind of an adjunct professor at Syracuse. His main job was calling. He was the voice of the Orange. He was calling Syracuse basketball and football on the main FM in town. I worked for the FM student station, an NPR station, but but Dave was the voice of the Orange. And he taught this class. And he got he was a Syracuse grad, too. And then as the semester was winding down, Bill Roth, another Syracuse graduate, at the time the longtime voice of the Virginia Tech Hokies, called Dave and said, hey, we have an opening to call Virginia Tech women's basketball. Do you know anybody? And Dave recommended me for that job. So Syracuse connected the dots to 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 take to meet Dave Pash. And again, had I not taken that Friday 8 a.m. class, I don't think I would have connected with Dave Pash, but I did. And I connected with Dave, and Dave knew Bill, and Bill knew Dave, and that's how it all began for me in the fall of 2000. We've had a lot of the members of the Syracuse Army on this yeah. podcast yeah, over, the, over. over the years. They're all over. And obviously a huge pat on the back for the program. They're obviously incredible. And I feel like with a lot of the guests, we've talked a lot about it, and I don't want to ask the same questions every time, but was there any negative to going to Syracuse? Is there another side of it? Just because I've never asked anybody that, and I was curious. Is there anything that was maybe more difficult because of going there? I, I think absolutely. I think it's a great question. I think that there are Syracuse graduates, and I had some. They're, they're dear friends of mine that feel this sense of entitlement, that when they graduate with a degree from Syracuse, and it says broadcast journalism on that degree, that they're entitled to a job, that just because I went to Syracuse, I'm better than you, and you went to a different school in a different city, different state, I deserve this job more than you because it says Syracuse on my degree. And that That is a horrible way to approach this, and I I believe that it costs people jobs because they they have this sense of entitlement that when they graduate, that they're only going to work in this market. They're only going to go to here. They're only going to go there. It goes back to something Brad said earlier, is that you, you don't be picky with this. Get on the air. And there are friends of mine who are dead set on, I'm only going to Philly. I'm only going to Phoenix. I'm only going to Dallas. I'm only going to New York. They may be in those cities. If they are, the majority, they're not broadcasting. They're doing something else. They may be, they may be doing a whole other job 
outside of sports, the NBA in finance, what have you. That, to me, works against Syracuse because you just feel like when you when you graduate from there, you have this, oh, my chest is puffy, I'm, gonna, I'm better than you because I went to Syracuse. That's not the case. You still have to work hard. Now, Syracuse opens doors, and your tape should be really, really good, both from a TV standpoint, a radio standpoint, because the equipment you have, Logan, is better than a lot of top 20 markets nationally. If you're putting together a tape, uh, you know, in a top 20 market, you probably have better equipment than some of those markets do. That's how scary it is because it's so well-funded. It's such a great place to go and a place to learn, a place to work. They should have a pretty good chance to get a job, albeit one that may not be and likely will not be in the city you want to be in. And that's the decision that you have to make at the age of 20, 21, 22. Are you really going to make an effort to, to try and succeed in this business? If you do, chances are you're going small and you're going small early. Is the equipment better than the uh, Say the Damn Score mobile no, studio in the no, hallway no, of this, uh, this Lund's and Byerly's? This is better. <laughs> this this is better. We would dream to have the Pro FX8 Volume 2 model Mackie board. <laughs> we don't have this at uh, at the Newhouse School. No way. Um, what does made you decide to go to Syracuse in the first place? Because you're a Chicago guy. You have Northwestern right in your backyard, another well-known media school. What was the decision to go to Syracuse? Where did that come from? I, I couldn't get into Northwestern, number one. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't have the grades to go there. It never really appealed to me. Um, I, I kind of wanted to get away. I, I, I didn't go to school with a lot of people I knew, but I knew that, and I worked with a college counselor. I, I just knew because all my friends were going to Big Ten schools. My buddies were going to Illinois. They were going to Madison. They were going to Iowa. Uh, my brother was a student at Arizona at the time, and the weather was awesome. Don't get me wrong. It was I loved to visit them out there. But I really knew what I wanted to do. And I don't know how many 17-year-olds know that. When they begin college, do they truly know what they want to do? Not this one. Not, not many, <laughs> right? Not many do. Well, I, I did. And so I, I worked with my college counselor, and, we, and we, we said Syracuse was an option. It's an expensive school, so we had to look into financing and how that was going to all work out. Uh, but I took a tour, and I went to see Syracuse. and went to see Boston University. I, I visited Ithaca. And Syracuse appealed to me right away. I just love the, the campus feel. I love the quad. I like the, the athletic programs that they had. At the time, football was better than basketball. You know, Donovan McNabb was the, the star quarterback, and they were producing all these great NFL talents year after year. So I, so I think I maybe went to a football game relatively early, and I thought this is great because the Dome was sold out. They were a top you know, 15, top 20 team, sometimes top 10 every year, winning you know, uh, Big East championships, uh, going to the Orange Bowl. They had a great program. So the appeal of a big-time athletics program, and then you combine that with Syracuse and the reputation of WAER, the radio station that I worked at and that my buddies all worked at and so many alums uh, got a chance to work at during their time at SU. When you combine all those factors, and um, it just seemed to be it seemed to be the perfect fit for me. Now, the weather is as bad as they make it out to be. The weather that, that we've had here in Minnesota in, in October, this rainy, dreary, drizzly day, that's standard. That's a standard day in Syracuse. If it's not snowing, it's probably cloudy and a light, annoying mist that never ends. Uh, there's not really a spring. It goes from winter to summer in Syracuse. But all that aside, I still had, I still had an absolute blast, and I have no regrets about where I went to school. So going to Virginia Tech for your first job in Blacksburg, you mentioned how you got it, and you mentioned that a lot of that was because of Bill Roth. What was the influence that he had on your career? 
He is a vital part of my life, and as I've bounced around from job to job, I've put together this uh, this broadcast council where I just kind of pick their brains about people that I've worked with, people that they're not all broadcasters. Some work in other areas of, uh, of, of sports that I just have always leaned on for advice. And Bill is probably the leader of that group. He has always been one to give me, and this goes back to, to 2000, to the fall of 2000, where I made a where I made a gutsy call. And going back to something I said earlier, Logan, that you graduate from Syracuse and you're not going to have your pick of where you go. Well, I, I had a job opportunity, not an offer, in Chicago, and that I'm like, this is this would be amazing. I'm 22 and I could stay home right away and and work at uh, one of the all sports stations in Chicago. Begin as 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 a reporter, do updates, and maybe that grows into something else. So I interviewed for that job, but then I interviewed for this play-by-play job at Virginia Tech, and I really wanted to do play-by-play. I knew in my mind I wanted to do that. So I interviewed for both jobs, and I called the place in Chicago and said, hey, the Virginia Tech job, they need to know. Can you promise me that, can you either offer me the job in Chicago, or can you say that I have a really good chance? If so, I'm going to turn down this Virginia Tech job. And they said, no, we can't tell you that right now. I said, okay, thank you for your time. I'm going to take this Virginia Tech job. I'm going to take the guarantee. And I did. And from day one, I, I had I had Bill Roth listening and watching and teaching me every day about how to do this at a professional level, uh, how to dress, what to say, how to act uh, when you're traveling with a team, uh, how you behave, where you sit, where you go, where you don't go, where you're, you're cut off, where there, you have to draw a line at some point where – Yet you travel with the team, you're part of it, but at a certain point, you're not, you're not, you don't belong in the locker room to a point. You have to kind of know your boundaries. And so that was a big part of it. And then with the on-air work, you know, Bill always taught me from day one that in the medium of radio, it's impossible to be too descriptive. It's impossible. If you work in radio, you always have that chance and that challenge to challenge yourself by painting a clearer, and more vivid picture than you currently may be doing. So instead of, and I, 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 I still live by that saying now, and instead of saying, you know, uh, in baseball terms, instead of, uh, instead of uh, you know, Miguel Sano hits a ground ball to short, Anderson Fields throws him out, that's out number one. That's a boring play description. Well, how can you enhance that a little bit? Well, Miguel Sano, it's a ground ball to the hole it's short. Anderson to his right. He backhands. He sets his feet, throws low, dug out by Moncada, and that's in time for out number two. So by by saying that, I feel like you've just you've painted an even clearer picture than you would have otherwise. So that, to me, stays in my in my brain the entire time about how can I always challenge myself to be more descriptive, and that begins with, with Bill Roth. One of the things you mentioned was, you know, taking a risk, turning down a job in a smaller market, which may be a better play-by-play opportunity, but certainly market size a backwards step. And right now I'm in the middle of taking a calculated risk, think, knowing that there's more opportunity here than there is in South Dakota that may turn out. It may not. But uh, how many times have you had to do that in your career, and what were the factors that kind of led you to making the decisions you did. A big myth about about how I got here is that people think every job I applied for I got. That's not true. There were often times that I applied for jobs, I thought I was going to get jobs and I didn't get jobs. And 
you had to live with disappointment, and that's all part of the process. There was a job that I came really close to getting in 2005. I interviewed for the Houston Cougar play-by-play job, and and I and I got down to the final pairing, and I went down for the interview, and I interviewed with a host of different people from uh, – radio station people from uh, people within the athletic department, and it was a lengthy, lengthy process. And I left there feeling like I, I, I have a chance to really get this job. This may be something I'm going to get. And then I got back. I was living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina at the time, working for ISB Sports, and I got back and just kind of waited out the process. Then I got a phone call and said that I did not get the job, that I was the number two choice. As it turned out, the job went to somebody else, a guy that, that I think deserved the job more than me. He was in the market already. He was the, the former voice of the Houston Oilers. He knew the market. He knew the city. Uh, he had a great voice. He was really good on the air. And and I, I thought, okay, I lost out. I'm disappointed. But then I lost out to somebody that I think deserved it more than me and would do a better job than I would have. He knows the city. He knows a lot of the people. And I think you can't really... You can't really argue with that. And then I was working on the Georgia Tech broadcast uh, at the time, too. I was working on Wake Forest, Virginia Tech to an extent, but more Wake Forest and Georgia Tech. And Dave Brain was the athletic director of Georgia Tech at the time. And I remember asking him for advice about what to ask because I was going to meet with the Houston AD during this process. And after I didn't get the job, I just called Dave back and said, hey, I just want to thank you for your help and thank you for your time. I didn't get the job, but I really learned a lot that I think next time a job comes open, I'm going to be in, in the better. I have a better chance to get that job based on the experience that I got from you. And Dave said to me, you know, Corey, I'm sure you're disappointed, but remember, it doesn't happen all the time, but there are times in your life and certainly in the business that you have chosen to pursue that before you can be number one, you may have to be number two. Stuck with me, and it really did. So that was a case where I just, I didn't get the job, but but I learned, and I learned about the process, and I learned how to prepare, and I leaned on another Syracuse contact for that job, um, Tony Caridi, the voice of the West Virginia Mountaineers. He's a legend in Morgantown. He's another Syracuse graduate, older than I am, but a guy that, that I interviewed with for a job out of school that I did not get before I went to Blacksburg. I, I thought I was going to move to Charleston, West Virginia to, to get a job there, and I was going to work with, with uh, Tony Caridi. But Tony gave me the idea of when you when you go in for a job interview, don't just tell people how you're going to prepare for a broadcast. Show them. So I made spotting boards. I made actual boards with the Houston players on it, both in basketball and football, say they were playing uh, UAB. Say it was Houston UAB. I made boards to show people this is how I prepare because a part of, of interviewing for jobs is try to remember what can you do to differentiate yourself from your other competitors, your other candidates. Where, say there's 10 other people you're going to be going up against. Are nine other people going to make boards? Maybe not. But maybe that's a subtle way to distance yourself from the pack a little bit to have them think, oh, yeah, that Corey guy, he was the one that made those boards, right? He all sounded the same, but I, I like that he went that step. Little subtle moments like that I think go a long way. So from there you mentioned becoming a number two, and you then were hired by University of Alabama, Birmingham, and stayed there for a short amount of time. You thought you were going to be there for a while, but – uh, ended up getting an offer to come back to Chicago and be involved with the Chicago Cubs, your favorite team growing up. 
And I want to fast forward to there because you got to do one inning of play-by-play uh, during those games. How did that come about? And I guess uh, what were the challenges of doing that one inning? Well, you know, are you a golfer? A very poor one. Okay, so golfing, I, I use it in this way, that you know, golfing is golfing is, is a hard sport. It's a really hard sport. We all, I think a lot of people enjoy doing it, but are we all really good at it? Probably not. Imagine, you know, you're, you're watching a game. You're the caddy for nine innings. And then you get to the turn and, all right, here you go. Here's a club. Knock it down the fairway. You know, center cut. You haven't swung a club in an hour and a half. You've been holding a bag, but you haven't swung. And now perform. Go. That's kind of what that was like. You were following the game along. You were practicing in your mind what you're going to say. The fifth inning, from my standpoint, was my most important inning because that was the inning that I was gonna that that I needed to do well. That was gonna hopefully launch my career to get a to get a big league you know baseball job somewhere down the way. And that fifth inning, as small as it was, maybe in the scope of things, it was vital. And it was it was it was a, it was it was tough. But it was also so exciting because I got to listen to Pat Hughes and, and, and through osmosis, I just got better. Just listening to him every day. And I listened to him as a kid growing up, but to actually listen to him for my job and get paid to do it, I was better. He just made me better. And then when you get a chance to work with Ron Sano, when you get a chance to, to be around Ron Sano, who's going to make you just a better person, you are, you are given a chance to succeed. You're on this, this, this heralded station, this WGN 720 flamethrower that's had the Cubs forever. And the Cubs were good, too. 07, 08 were two playoff teams. So it was all there. It was there for me to succeed. I just needed to hit it. I needed to put the ball on the tee on that 10th hole and knock it down the fairway. And I didn't always hit it straight. There were times that I snap-hooked that thing, and I maybe slice one into the bunker and, you know, onto the right side. But it is what it is. I had another day. I, I had the next day to do better and to be better. And I just learned how to be a professional. I learned how to travel with a major league team, where you go, where you don't go, uh, where are the boundaries and all that. And I, it, it, was, it was the best job. I was 28 years old. I didn't know what I was doing. And it all happened so quickly. And I, I was just so fortunate to get that chance. And a guy uh, that, I'll, that I'll be grateful to forever, his name is Dave Bennett, he hired me. You know, He's he, been on the podcast. Uh, too. Dave Bennett, you know, <laughs> Dave Bennett uh, gave me my chance in big league baseball. He and Bob Shopper, uh, the program director at WGN at the radio at the time, uh, gave me the chance to to succeed. It was up to me to take the ball from there, and and hopefully I did. Did you prepare for that one inning like you were doing an entire game? Yes, yes. You know, I kept score, but I would also, you know, part of my job was that I felt that. If, if there were things that were coming up during the game that might be beneficial for Pat to, to announce a certain statistical trend that maybe wasn't on the game notes that I would write it down and hand it to him. So it was part broadcaster, but also part producer, uh, part assistant, part whatever. It was, it was a lot of different things, but the fifth inning was my time to shine. So I wanted to be prepared. I wanted to have the news of the day on both sides. That maybe the fifth inning too is a good inning because the halfway point, you know, maybe there's some things that Pat and Ron were talking about in the first or second inning. Maybe an hour and a half has gone by. Maybe it's a long game that I don't think it's wrong to go back and revisit some of those topics because you don't know who's listening. You know, people were in the car for five minutes and maybe turned it off and were 
don't know what you're talking about. So I feel like that is an area and was an area for me to do to do well. And uh, But I would prepare that I was doing all nine. I would study the players. I would keep score. And uh, the, the way that – this is a whole separate story about the way that I kept score – uh, was the way that I learned from my from my parents, and uh, that was that was entirely different when I got to Milwaukee because that was a whole unique way of uh, scoring baseball once I got to Milwaukee. So, oddly enough, the two markets I lived in South Dakota, one of them only had one sports station, and they had they or they were a Twins affiliate, and the other one we actually carried the Cubs in Yankton, South Dakota, and I would I did sales and and sports for them. And so I listened to a lot of the Cubs and the Twins. So those are the you and Pat Hughes are probably the two broadcasters I've listened to the most of. And I guess I before doing research for the show, I didn't know that there was that much connection between the two of you. But you guys both are very similar in the way that you're conversational and you put personality into your broadcast. How did you learn to do that? And I guess what or is it something that just came naturally? It, well, it's eerie. The, the connect, the, there are some similarities with Pat. You know, he began with the Twins for one year. Then he went to Milwaukee. Then he went to the Cubs. I went from the Cubs, Milwaukee, Twins. So the three teams that we've all kind of called uh, are the same, which is uh, which is kind of an eerie connection. You know, Pat, to this day, and you listen to Pat Logan, so you get the sense of this, he is a champion. And I, and I would imagine that he learned this from, from the guy in Milwaukee, too, like I did that you have to be able to laugh at yourself. It's it's baseball. It's a game. Yes, it's important. Yes, it's a business. Yes, it's a lot of there's a lot of commitment in terms of emotions, in terms of dollars that that fans and, and organizations have to make to, to to perform each and every day, but it's a game. So my take on that is that if if you're having a rough day, if there's a if there's a family having a hard time, and the bills are piling up. They got a lot going on at the house with their job. That they need three hours, or in today's era, three and a half hours of enjoyment. They need a distraction. They need to get out of their minds for three and a half hours. That's my job, is to have fun, is to let them laugh a little bit, learn a little bit. And if I do that, then I'm happy. Win or lose, I, I would love for the Twins to win every day. It's not going to happen. But inform, educate, entertain. Those are the three objectives that, I, that I've told our crew that we need to hammer home each day. Inform, educate, entertain. It's not in any particular order, but we have to do that. If we're not doing that, then we've missed, then we have not done our job on that day. And that, to me, comes from Pat because I learned how to laugh. I learned that this is a game. Let's have some fun. Take some chances. Have some risk involved with what you do. If you tell a joke, it bombs. Who cares? Move on. Just don't give up and just don't be a stiff, you know, monotone broadcaster for three hours because who wants to listen to that? I mean, that's not, that's not fun to listen to 162 times. I just remember one broadcast, and I don't remember who it was against or anything, that he just ended up going on a tangent talking about Led Zeppelin in the middle of a, of a Cubs game. I'm just like, this is brilliant. I love it. YouTube, if you can, and I, I invite uh, listeners to this podcast to do it, if you, if you need a laugh, YouTube the Pat and Ron Show, and you will hear some clips that uh, WGN producers put together that's still pretty popular on YouTube now, some of the funniest bits with Pat Hughes and Ron Sano, 
that will just make you smile. Even if you don't, even if you're not a Cub fan, and you just want to hear broadcasters have fun and laugh and listen and learn. The Pat and Ron show for for anybody growing up in the era that I did, that to me was 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 the template. That to me was the model broadcast with how I envision and how I want a baseball broadcast to be. I don't want it to be just stat after stat, stat after stat. I want it to be fun. I want it to be uh, personal. I want it to be entertaining. I want it to be educational, but I also want it to be fun. And if it's not fun, then then why even do this? So how did you end up going from Chicago to Milwaukee? Tell us that story. Jim Powell was the – so Pat Hughes was in Milwaukee for more than a decade. And then Jim Powell – Followed Pat because Pat went to the Cubs. And then Jim was with Euchre the longest of any partner. Uh, I, I forgot if it was 15 years or, you know, it was somewhere in there. But Jim was with uh, Jim was with Bob Euchre longer than any other partner that Bob has had or will have. And Jim got the main job with the Atlanta Braves. And he has ties down there. Uh, he went to Georgia, his family, all that, his wife. So he has, that, was a, that was a significant job opportunity for him. Uh, that he had to pursue. So Jim Powell then went to Atlanta, and the number two job opened up in Milwaukee. And being the, the the proximity that the Brewers and Cubs have geographically with one another, you can hear WGN Radio in Milwaukee. So when that job came open, uh, a guy by the name of Carl Mall, who was the uh, who was the program director at WTMJ Radio in Milwaukee at the time. He started to, to, to kind of put his feelers out about who would, who would, you know, be in this job, who would be the perfect fit for this job. Well, Brian Anderson, the TV announcer for the Brewers, who's, you know, now one of the top guys in the game doing the, you know, baseball on, on TBS and doing the Final Four on CBS and TBS, you name it. He and I became close. We have the same agent. And so he let the Brewers know that, hey, that uh, there's a guy in Chicago I think you should, you should check out. And it helped that you can just flip on WGN Radio in Milwaukee and hear my work. Uh, so that worked in my favor. At the same time, Bob likes you know somebody young, somebody that is going to have fun, somebody that's a team player. And I think I fit that, that criteria. So I, I was fortunate to interview for that job as well. And then part of the interview was flying out to Arizona to have dinner with Bob at his favorite restaurant down in Charlie's in Scottsdale and as you and I are sitting here facing one another today, Bob had his own table at Don and Charlie's, and it's filled with sports memorabilia. It's a really cool place with jerseys and bats and baseballs and pictures. Well, right above where Bob is sitting is a picture of Bob with no shirt on. He's fishing, right? So, Or he's doing something on a boat. And I'm trying to look at Bob and have this conversation, but I can't stop looking over his head and see this uh, you know, Bob, U- this shirtless Bob Euchre over his head that, that certainly had my eye. But we just hit it off that that day, and uh, you know, after that, he he gave me the stamp of approval, and I got that job, and that was in I think like February or January of two thousand nine, and that's how that began, and and then three years uh, there, then I got the chance to come up uh, to the Twin Cities. So with Bob Euchre, my one of my favorite sports movies of all time is Major League. Harry Doyle is the funniest part of that movie, and I actually did an entire podcast where we played back all of the play-by-play from both of those major league movies, and we critiqued it like it was real as a joke. I think that was like episode number four. And I've always wanted to find a way to get Bob on this show, and it's never happened. But can you – does he, like, shake his head and get uh, 
annoyed when people make major league references to him at this point, or does he still kind of eat that up? Here's the here's the fact that when I tell people this, they are stunned because it's such a great movie, and he he nailed that character. He nailed he nailed that role. Bob Euchre will tell you he has never seen that movie start to finish. He has never seen it. It's on in the clubhouse all the time. He'll watch the scene, but then kind of duck away. And the reason is he's that he's a perfectionist. Anything that he sees or hears of his work, he feels like he should have done differently. It could have been better. Where we all think he nailed that role. He nailed that line. Now, now the inflection of that syllable, I could have done that. I could have paused here. You know, so there, that's a part of it, but he's never seen that movie start to finish. There would be times, not on the air, but there would be times, and I'd pick my spot, wouldn't do it all the time, but if, uh, you know, if the Brewers lost to the, to the Cubs or to the Reds and, uh, and we're in commercial break before we come back with the totals, and if we just got one hit, I will say, Yuke, we only got one hit. We only got one, and then I stop and I let him go. <laughs> And then he'll then he'll finish it. He'll finish it. Once in a while, he would go down that uh, he'd go down that road uh, with me, but not in the air. But it was it was something that I would be, and I'm sure others have done it since. I'm sure that you know Jeff and uh, and Lane and, and Joe maybe even did this after I left. I, I I just think it was something that that he enjoys doing from time to time. But he just can't hammer it home all the time, because to me, yes, Harry Doyle was 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 my euchre connection. For others, it was Belvedere. For others, it was Johnny Carson. For others, it was Miller Lite. For others, it was even his playing career. You name it, which is sad, but that's, that's the case. He just appeals to this day to so many different demographics and so many different ages and genders and background. You name it. He's such an appealing, iconic man that was so good, still is so good to me, and without him, I'm not here. So from that point, you make it to the Twins, and we'll get to that story a little bit later, but... You made it to the major league voice of a team without ever going to the minor leagues. That's not, I mean, it's not, it's not that it doesn't ever happen, but it doesn't happen real often that somebody gets to that spot without ever having to do minor league baseball. How does that unusualness stand out to you? I did minor league baseball one summer. Uh, and summer, uh, one there summer goes my count. shoddy research. But no, but but, I did, but this was one. Well, you you bring up a valid point though. I did minor league baseball one summer, uh, going into my junior year of college. I did, or maybe it was sophomore year. I did the Auburn Double Days uh, in Auburn, New York. They were the New York Penn League affiliate of the uh, Houston Astros at the time. They had a really good team. Johan Santana was on that team, and uh, Roy Oswald, Morgan Ensberg, Keith Ginner, Colin Porter. It was a really good team. Um, so I, so I had just one small season of minor league baseball. But you bring up a very valid point that did I have this wealth of, of minor league baseball experience? No, I did do college baseball. And I did a few years of college baseball. It's not the same, but I did do college baseball. So it kind of goes back to the job with the Cubs. The baseball part of it, the play-by-play part of it, to me was the most significant. But to my employer, that was the least significant. They wanted somebody who could cover a team who could do an interview who could file reports who could get sound my job was the was the cubs beat reporter for wgn radio slash play-by-play slash uh you know host pre and post game with the cubs 07 and 08 so that to me was 
there were skills in that that I could do, that I had done more than doing minor league baseball. I had to do some baseball, and I did some baseball. I was doing UAB baseball, so I, there was some fresh tape that I had to do a baseball game. But for the Cubs, when they and really WGN, they wanted to know that I could do the other things, that the baseball play-by-play, yeah, that's important, but for us, we need you to check these other boxes, and I did. And that's that helped me get that job and connecting and, and staying in touch. I met Dave Ennett in 2000, and I was going to Blacksburg, and I said, look, I... I know you don't have a job opening here, but my name is Corey Provis. I'm from the suburbs, and I'd love to work here one day. Here's my tape. Could you keep me in mind if a job opens up here? So twice a year, I'd send him an email. Say, hey, Dave, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing this now. I'm here. Anything comes up, could you keep me in mind? So sure enough, in 2009, I'm sorry, 2007, when Andy Mazur left and went to the San Diego Padres, it wasn't like, where where you been the last seven years? Dave knew exactly where I was, what I was doing, where my career had gone, so that when this job opened up, he said, I think this is our guy. I think because he's been doing all this, he's been staying in contact with us, I think he's he's our he's gonna be our choice to, to, to be given this job and and I'll be grateful forever that he that he trusted me to do that. So I, I didn't have a tr- a ton of minor league experience, you're right, but I did do the other things that that, that were required with the job, specifically WGN Radio, beginning in 2007. So now let's go to the Twins story. It's my podcast, but it's not about me. So I'll let you tell the story of how you got to the Twins from that point. So 2011, uh, Twins and the Brewers are playing. You know, they had the interleague rivalry, what, six games a year, three at, at Target Field and three at Miller Park. And, and we all knew that John Gordon was retiring at the end of the 2011 season. So I just interviewed, I think, John for a, for a pregame show because uh, I was doing the pre and post uh, with Euchre uh, on the Milwaukee broadcast. So I think I interviewed John, and I just chatted with him about after we got done about the job. And he said, are you interested? I said, sure. I, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to be considered. So John, I, I think, mentioned my name to Andy Price, who was uh, in charge of the search at the time. And, uh, you know, the director of broadcasting with the Minnesota Twins during that time. And as the season was playing out, the 2011 season was playing out, I, I kept hearing from, from my agent and I kept hearing from others that, that the, that the Twins are interested, that they are. But as, as great as that was, as flattering as that was to hear, I, I said, I don't want to know anymore. Milwaukee's having a good season. 2011 was a playoff year. And uh, they, they won the division that year, and they beat the Diamondbacks in a thrilling Game 5 Niger Morgan walk-off hit to win the NLDS and, and take on the Cardinals in the National League Championship Series. And I wanted all my energy, all my attention to be on that because I thought Milwaukee had a really good chance to win the pennant, if not the World Series that year. Cardinals did win the World Series that year. but So th- the season ended, and it ended in Milwaukee, and I think it ended on a Saturday or Sunday. The next day, my phone rings, and it's 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 my agent saying, "Hey, the twins want to bring you up to Minneapolis for an interview." And I said, "Oh." So I later that week, I I went up for an interview, and it went well. And I met with all different people. I met with Andy. I met with Mark Janowski, the uh, producer of the broadcast. I met with uh, Bill Smith at the time with the team GM. I met with uh, Jim Polad, the owner, team president Dave St. Peter. And we had to do a mock broadcast, too. Like, it, uh, you, you watch a TV screen, and you just kind of broadcast. Uh, you're doing a mock broadcast. And I left thinking that, all right, 
know, it went well, but I, I don't know if I was going to get it. Now, while that was going on, the Brewers were saying, look, if they offer you the job, don't take it. Let us, let us counter. Let us try and keep you. Now, the wrinkle was I didn't work for the team. I worked for the radio station. I worked for WTMJ. I didn't work for the Brewers. I really wanted to work for the team. That, that's where I was going to go. I was trying to work for the team. And I had my reasons, and I really wanted that to be a part of it. And the Brewers, they, they couldn't guarantee me that. At the same time, when the Twins called and said, hey, we want to offer you the job, I was floored. I, I was just floored by it because I just read in the, in the Star Tribune like a day or two before that Ryan Lefevre seemed to be the front runner, but my name was in the article. And that's all I was kind of, that's all I was kind of hoping for is that, you know, I, at least my name was considered and there was some publicity behind it. This is pretty good for my career. So when I saw that Ryan was the, was the favorite to get the job, I said, okay, you know, he's ties here. He, he played at the U. He, he was a twins broadcaster in the past and, and maybe wanted to come back and he's great. Good for him. Uh, when Andy Price called me, I, I figured that, hey, you know, I'm sure you saw the story. We've offered it to Ryan Lefevre, but, you know, we really liked you. And I thought, okay. But when Andy called me and said, did you see the story? I said, yeah. Well, that's not true. We want to offer you the job. I was stunned. I just got done working out. I was just got done working out. And I was. Uh, my first reaction was, euchre. And Bob had a tough 2010 where he had two open heart surgeries that 2010 year and he missed a lot of time. Was this, was this fair to him? Was this, we had a good thing going. 2011 was a good team. We, we had our chemistry. We had our rhythm. It was really fun. Is this fair for him and his well-being to have him start all over again? And I called him and said, and he was in the loop that this was a possibility, but he was maybe my second phone call. I think my, my wife, I know this, my wife was my first phone call, and then Euchre was my second phone call. And when Bob told me, he said, if you don't take that job, I'm going to kill you. That <laughs> sealed it for me. That sealed it. Because if he would have said, you know, you know what I just went through, it'd mean the world to me if you'd stay, and we'll make it work, we'll, we'll make the money work, we'll, we're going to find a way, I don't think I would be here. I, I think that that's how... That's how much I, I still care about that man and care about the run that we had going and, and where he was physically at the time and how much he meant to me and how much he meant to my He was great to my wife, still is. That had he not said that, if you don't take that job, I'm going to kill you, I don't know if I end up taking the job and, and beginning my career with the Twins. <laughs> it's weird the way things work out sometimes. It really is. It's, it's kind of a, you know, you hope for that break. You hope, you, you hope that door opens up. But once you're once you're through that door and once you're in the room, your talent's going to keep you there. Yeah, it takes a little help sometimes to open up doors and could be networking, could be sheer luck. And a lot of it in my career has been networking, but there's been some luck involved too. That I hope that my talent has kept me in the room. That yeah, there was a small crack that I needed maybe a little help opening, but once that door flew open, I hope I pounced the chance to stay in the room. I want to follow up on something you touched at at the beginning of that answer. You mentioned you called your agent. At what point in your career was it the right decision to have an agent, have representation? When I knew I was applying for a play-by-play job. The Cub job, I hate to, to be redundant, but the Cub job, it wasn't a play-by-play job. It was other things. That was a big part of it in my mind, but, it, but again, it was not the most important part of the job. When I began applying for strictly play-by-play jobs, 
that's and I had the resume and I had the tape to do it and I had a realistic chance to to get that Logan. Then I figured it was it was the right path. The first the first offer I got from WTMJ in Milwaukee I thought was a low offer. I thought it was they offered me like a six month. It was a six month audition. It was like a one year deal with a second year option. I'm like, whoa! I'm not giving up what I have. I, I enjoy being in Chicago. I enjoy being with my family. I enjoy. You know, this this Cub job, I'm not giving this up for a six-month trial run. So I felt like this was a bad deal. And my agent to this day is a guy I went to school with, and I've known him forever. And I made a phone call and said, hey, you know, the, the Brewers offered me this job. I don't like it. I think you can do better. Will you take me on as a client? He said yes, and he got me a better deal. He got me more money. He got me two years guaranteed. And so that's that's when I knew when I began applying for play-by-play jobs, but then when I first got that offer, I knew it wasn't right, and I didn't have the background to fight back. I didn't know the market. I didn't know what other people were doing, that I figured that that was the opportune time. It's a significant check to write every month. It is. And you have to ask yourself, the job that I'm doing right now, is it marketable? Is an agent really going to fight for me? Am I just doing this? Is that enough? Maybe so, maybe not, that I need to maybe present a job offer to an agent. Look what I have. Help me. Let's work together. But you have to be aggressive in defining that, maybe that first big job, before I would think you want to approach having an agent work for you. All right, we'll finish this up with our last kind of couple questions that we ask just about everybody. And the first one is, share with us what I like to call broadcast horror stories, where Something goes horribly wrong in a broadcast that at the moment that it happens is mortifying, but you look back on now and laugh with like a bad setup or equipment going yeah. haywire. It could be anything. It happens a lot. So it was it, when, I, when I did, when I worked in Virginia, and part of my job was, was doing high school football, Blacksburg High School football on Friday nights, and a small press box, but we use what's called a Marty. You familiar with a Marty? <laughs> So Marty's a giant antenna, right? It's an yes. antenna on the outside. You, you can't keep it in your booth. It just kind of you cables, and it's, it's on the ground outside. And we're calling a game. There's no engineer. I'm the engineer. I'm the engineer. I have an analyst, but it's the two of us. And I know that we just lost signal. So the game's going on. Game's going on. I have to leave. I have to go somehow fix fix the Marty and move it around, Get get everything going here. And I'm, 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 I, I can see my analyst. I can see out the window. I'm like, because I'm, I'm waiting for him to have the headset on. Does he hear things? Can he hear Mike? Can he hear, you know, clean sound? Or is, there still, is there still static? What's going on? And he finally gives me a thumbs up, and we're like, I'm good. I think we missed the entire first quarter. I mean, <laughs> I think we just missed so much of the action. Uh, so that was a part of it that same year. So we used a Marty for home games. Then we used a Cellcaster uh, for road games. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Southwest Virginia, but that's there's some mountains out there. You got uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains, a beautiful area, but cell phone reception isn't ideal when you start to go, you know, into different areas of the uh, of the valley. And sure enough, we'd be trying to broadcast a, a road game, and you get no cell reception, and you're just I don't know it, what what can you do? I mean, you can't really move things around. So you're trying to to find any signal. And that'd be a challenge. So high school football in Southwest Virginia was 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 tough because you were at the mercy of your equipment. Sometimes you were at the mercy of your your geography, where you were in the state. So that worked against you. Those were times that I look back and I say, ah, no big deal. Then there's other moments when, and these are all good, that 
and I worked with a lot of funny people, that they would say things, and Euchre especially would say things, to get you to a point where you could no longer speak. And you're live. You have nowhere to go. You have got drops to read. You have got programming to fill. And you can't talk because you were laughing. And Euchre <laughs> would do that. You know, Ron Sano would do that. You know, Sano. But Sano's would not be intentional. Euchre's were intentional. You know, and Sano would say, you know, Carlos Zambrano was pitching a, a day game for the Cubs. And his previous start, he had to come out of the game early. He had cramps in his forearm. And as we learned in between starts, that it wasn't just cramps. He, he had his potassium dropped. So during the week, he's filling up with, with fluids. But what, do you, what has potassium? Bananas, right? So I'm doing my live crosstalk with Sano. Cub Central pregame just started. Like, all right, Ronnie, you know, Carlos Zambrano, uh, Carlos Zambrano back in the mound here uh, today, and, you know, this will be his first start since leaving early against the Braves four or five days ago. Good news is, you know, yeah, he cramped up, but he loaded his body with, with Gatorade and his potassium down. He ate some bananas. He should be good to go. Ron Sando then says, yep, you know, Cor, the, uh, that's good and all, but the one thing about bananas, you eat too many and they'll plug you up. <laughs> so, so where do you go from there? I mean, Sando, I think, realized what he said, so then you hear this. He just slammed his headset down because he realized he can't talk. And I got I got these cards to read. I got billboards to read, and I can't I can't get back on track. So that was a great moment. Euchre would do that too, and it was it was those were fun moments. You look back on it and say, you know what? I was lucky to work with those two guys because they really made it fun. Do you remember a specific example of Bob Euchre doing that to you? Oh sure. He would. Uh, we were playing end of the 2009 season. Uh, we're wrapping up in Cincinnati, and there was some kind of on-field event going on. They had all these people, did all this music, dancers, and there was this one lady that, that caught our attention. And are you a Simpsons fan? Yes. Okay, so you, Marge Simpson has the towering blue hair, right? <laughs> so take out the hair and put every piece of produce imaginable glued together. There's towering, this towering tower of, of produce that just was attached to her head. So we're watching her dance and all that, and it was it was just a fascinating thing to see. But then she was going to sing the anthem. So the way that we had our broadcast set up is that we would try to cover the anthem because we thought it was disrespectful to carry it midway through. So we did our best. At home, we could, we could coordinate the times better. On the road, we didn't have that luxury. It's up to the home team. So there'd be times when we'd carry the anthem on the road, not intentionally, just based on timing and how it all played out. So this last weekend of the 2009 season in Cincinnati, and this lady is singing the anthem, and we get it probably midway through. So the way that our format was set up was Bob would take it out and throw it to me for the lineups. Okay, so he'd say, all right, the lineups, here's Corey. But he would normally say who sang the anthem, nice job, whatever it was. So we're carrying these last bars of the anthem, and he says the following. The Chiquita Banana with our national anthem. The lineups, here's Corey. Well, well, where do you go? I mean, you just start laughing. You just start laughing because I was not ready for that. And the way that he said it, his timing, his cadence, it was just perfect. He just nailed it. It was the end of a long season. The, the Brewers did not have a good year, and he just nailed it. So when he said the Chiquita Banana with our national anthem, that was that was one of the, the many moments where I had where I said, uh, I'm struggling here. But then Pat Hughes told me a good story because I talked to – Pat and I normally have this end of season, and we'll have it here soon, 
we have this hour-long chat about how it went, things that went well, things that were tough, what you learned, all that. So when I told Pat that story, he said, he likes you. I said, why? He goes, I'm telling you, the second that euchre gets you to laugh like that on the air, you're in. <laughs> and I said, okay, because that was the first time it happened. It happened many more times after that, but that was the first time. What are the odds that you would have two funny baseball stories involving bananas? Isn't that something? Yeah, it's a good point. I never <laughs> thought about it that way. But, yeah, maybe there's something is with, with bananas and baseball. What do you do to this day, reaching the stage that you've made, to still improve and become a better broadcaster? I don't listen to my stuff often. I listen to to others, and I listen to Scott Fransky, who I just I just he's just he's just so good at what he does. I listen to him. Um, I listen to the Giants. I listen to other broadcasters. I listen to you know Brian Anderson, and I'm I just want to I want to get better. I listen to Len Casper and, uh, and other broadcasters that I, that I've really gotten to know and got to to learn from and like. And Tom Hamilton, uh, Dan Dickerson teaches me a lot every day. Um, so I'm just I'm always curious, and now with 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 baseball and how prevalent analytics are, to me that's a refreshing look at okay, let's look at it this way. And now part of my job, getting back to inform and educate, is we need to start taking a look at that. We need to start diving into that more and more. About it's more than just batting average. It's more than just pitcher wins that will define why players are signed or why they're not signed. You know, Mike Mustakas ten years ago would have gotten a five year deal. But for all the home runs he hit in 2017, that was not enough. And he got, what, less than the qualifying offer, uh, you know, this year going back to Kansas City. So I just think now the modern-day numbers that we all study and we listen to and we learn about, I think it's given us somewhat of a clean slate to educate the audience about why guys are going a certain way and why front offices. And it's not just at the big league level. It's all throughout the system, who they're drafting, why they're drafting and what they're using to, to judge talent, uh, whether it's StatCast or, or PitchFX or any any modern-day website that is helpful to help tell people and inform people why things are going in this way and why players are signed and what defines a good player or not, there are, there are, there are areas out there now in the game today that can kind of back up that case. The final thing... I want to kind of talk to you about, because I've been in this situation with uh, covering either really good teams that beat everybody badly or really bad teams who get beat all the time. And you've been covering a team that's had some challenging seasons, we'll call them, with the Minnesota Twins. I mean, they made, they made the playoffs two years ago, but the the season sandwiched between that uh, were not great. How do you handle covering a losing team? You're honest. I think it's 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 different than than college. Uh, I think you have to hold you know the the players to a higher standard because these are professional athletes. They're not they're not 19 year old students. I don't think you treat the you know the, the Syracuse quarterback the same way you you treat the Minnesota Twins shortstop. I think they're they're once you get to a professional level and you're making the money, you have to be accountable. And at the same time, I'm not one to just crush and crush and crush. You point out facts and. When I say things that the Twins, they have made too many outs in the bases this year, it's not just hyperbole. There are stats that you can see that the Twins had a bad year running the bases. They had way too many outs on the base paths. That the fact that the Twins' bullpen has allowed more home runs 
and they have walked more hitters than any other American League bullpen since the All-Star break. That is a proven fact. That's what I go off of. I go off fact. I, I rarely, I don't give my opinion too much unless it's warranted, unless it can spark a dialogue. I think a fascinating thing to do is, you know, the bunt today. I don't. I, is it a lost art? Probably so, but I think it's. A, we live in an era today where don't bunt, swing the bat. You know why sacrifice an out for what could be a big inning? You just you just decrease your chances to have a bigger inning by sacrificing yourself. So if a situation arises where a player may bunt, and I may disagree, I don't say I disagree, but I may spark a conversation with Dan Gladden about what do you think? I, I think it's fair to bring up that debate, not question or judge that that guy i can't believe he did that that was a stupid decision not i don't go down that road but i do believe that there are times in the game that can spark dialogue that can spark conversation which i think is part of our job i'm going to ask one more question following up on that if you don't mind i said it was going to be the last one but i lied so we're again recording this during the baseball playoffs and there's been some controversy with the umpires, a specific one in particular. We don't need to go into that. But how do you handle bad officiating and umpiring? I don't. I, I don't. I let others do that. I, I think it's human beings, and you know, replay is, is here for a reason. You know, they get the call wrong, they look at it, they change it, we move on. I want to. I want to see the call right. Do I think that baseball will go to an automated strike zone one day? I do. I, I think that that. I think it's going to hurt the, the the batters more than they think. I think it's going to be beneficial for the pitchers. Just think about any pitch that may just clip, may just clip the alleged strike zone, which is a whole separate argument. Uh, but I, I could see baseball going down that road. That I could see an automated strike zone at some point in the near future. I think other things will come into play before that. But I look. I don't. I don't crush umpires. I don't. There are. There are times where I think it's it's better if a former player does that than me. I think if Dan Gladden or Jack Morris or Tim Lawton or whomever we're, we're speaking with, if they're critical of an umpire, they've been in that moment to kind of point out why. I think it's I think you have to be careful in my role, especially about intent when pitchers hit batters. I may have a feeling on it, but I'd rather keep it to myself and let my analyst, let my former player, a former player, tell me why or why not. There's credibility there that I don't have, that I'll never have. I may have a feeling on it, but I think you can get, you go down a path that you can be wrong and you can put yourself in a bad spot. Umpires have a job to do. I think they're, they're right more times than they're wrong. And replay has, has solved things. Has it solved everything? No. Has it slowed the game down? It has. But have more calls been better because of that? Yes. Who knows how the Cardinals-Royals World Series ends up if they had replay back then. I mean, uh, you know, you know, there's perfect games thrown, obviously, uh, if you have replay that, that aren't uh, accounted for right now. So I, I just think, yeah, I, I, I like replay. And I was against replay. I thought you don't need it, that the calls even themselves out. But you ask any Twins fan about, you know, Joe Maurer and Phil Cuzzy left field line, Yankee Stadium, you know, that, that, that's a sore subject. That Phil Cuzzy missed that call, replay would, would have changed that. All right. Well, now we're actually going to let you go. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, what would the best way to do that be? Twitter. Uh, I, I retweet more than I, than, I, than I tweet, but Twitter's a good place to, to reach out. Uh, my, my name is, is, is my handle. But uh, now I'll leave you with this. I, I was thinking about, you know, this coming to, the, to, to meet you today. 
where I've changed my, my feeling on broadcasting in the last couple of years that, and this goes back to a Rolling Stone uh, article that I, that I read on uh, Dave Matthews' band a long time ago that just seemed to resonate with me now, uh, or recently, the last year or so, is that if there were 100 people in the room and if there was one person that did not like my job or did not like the work that I was doing and the way that I broadcasted baseball, they used to bother me. They used to, I used to say, how can I prove that one person wrong? And that was my, that was my take on this for a long, long time. But then the more that I've, that I've done this, and I think about the numbers, if there's 99 people who enjoy it, why would I change it? Why would I change what I do, how I do it, if 99 people seem to like it and the one person doesn't? Well, you know what? Then it may be a bird magic debate. It may be a Coke Pepsi. It may be any debate that will never be solved. There are just people that just do not like the job that you do, and you'll never prove them otherwise. And you have to live with that. I mean, that you have to have thick skin in this business. So I was thinking about that coming to meet you today because I think the last podcast that I did with somebody, I don't think this came up, and I wanted to bring it up today with you because it's something that I've that have really changed. My philosophy on broadcasting has changed, and is that with age? Is that with experience? I, I, I couldn't tell you, but I've really thought more and more about that the longer that I've done this. So do you read, you know, articles that you know to be critical or look at the message boards and the places where, you know, people who may or may not be qualified, mostly not to make judgments on that, will say say things about the work you do? No, I mean, I'll see it on Twitter. I mean, if they just write me on Twitter and all that, then I'll then I'll see, you know, this came, you know, Dan and I just signed a, a contract extension, so I this came up, you know, when we just signed uh, at the State Fair uh, not too long ago. So that this came up that there were a couple people who were like, boo, uh, I'm glad that Danny's here, but, you know, bummed that you're back. And that's all part of it. That, that I don't, I'm not mad. I don't, I don't resent those people. This, the, you work, if we're going to hold professional athletes to be accountable, then I have to be accountable. That there are times when I do not nail the call. I want to. Believe me, I want to get the call right every time. It's a hard gig. It's not the, everybody thinks they can do this too, right? I mean, yes. everybody thinks, oh, you got the best job. It's so easy. It's not that easy. The, the, the problem on, is that the people who on. are really good at it make it sound easy. Well, it's not. It's 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 a <laughs> challenge, and I, I I appreciate that. It, it's 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 a tough thing to do, and I and I, it's a new challenge every day. That's the best part about it. I have no idea. I have no idea what's going to happen. You know, writers have a delete button. We don't. We have to be right. We have to be accurate. We have to be on. At the moment, it's not easy, but that's the challenge. That's the fun part about it. Is is that there's some improv. There's some spontaneity to it and uh, that's why i knew when i graduated from college i did not want to be stuck behind an anchor desk and just read off a teleprompter i wanted to be at the game i wanted to be describing the moments of success the moments of failure uh the moments when a team succeeds or maybe sends their season south to be able to narrate those moments that resonates with people well i can tell you that the entire production staff of the say the damn score podcast is happy that you're back with the contract extension thank you it's very kind of you thank you thank you very much once again we're talking with Corey provis he is the voice of the minnesota twins from the say the damn score mobile studio at the uh, lunds and byerly's grocery store in minnetonka minnesota and Corey, thanks so much for coming on logan uh, best of luck to you and enjoy the, your time in the twin cities this has been the say the damn score podcast thanks for tuning in as always Make sure to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. And please follow the show on social media on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan or on Facebook.com slash Say the Damn Score.
We also appreciate it if you reach out to the guests that appear on the show and just tell them thank you for coming on and sharing their stories on the Say the Damn Score podcast by reaching out to them on Twitter or email or however they say to do so at the end of the podcast. That's it for today. I'm Logan Anderson. The next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.